Wonderful looking at Jesus. I love it. I love studying Jesus, just reading about him in the Gospels. He is an extraordinary and wonderful person. He's never boring. He's never predictable in that sense. Not, and you can get familiar with the Gospels. You need to read them again. Read Luke's Gospel. Read John's Gospel. Read any of them. I found Mark just great recently. He's very short and punchy. And see how exciting and provoking and challenging Jesus is. And that's what we want to do today. Now, our Lord Jesus was not just a wonderful person. He was a wonderful man. He was the Son of God. He died for our sins. He's our Redeemer and our Savior. And he is alive today. He is at the right hand of the Father forever. Jesus of Nazareth raised at the right hand of the Father in heaven. A man in heaven. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. If you, one word you associate with Jesus is life. I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. It, and that is one thing I'm grateful for John Eldridge. It really brings out. It is great to know Jesus and have him as your Lord and Savior. Now, before we even get into the rest of this morning, and this is a relevant comment for the whole mini-series through the summer... I want to say two things about Jesus that I want you to really keep in mind all the time. We're going to quickly look in a moment at three scriptures. They'll go up on the screen in a moment. But these, this is the first thing I want you to remember. Jesus shows us more clearly than anything else what God is like. If you want to know what God is like really, really the best you can. What is God really like? I know there are stuff you learn from the Old Testament, all the rest of it. I'm not belittling that. But if you really want to know the heart of God, then you look at Jesus. Now, let's look at these scriptures quickly. John 1, verse 18. This is, no one has ever seen God, beginning of John's gospel, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, get that, who is himself God as in, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. I'm not going to rush these verses. Let it sink in. When we're looking at everything else we do, remember that you will not see God. You, God is mysterious. He is other. There is a transcendent dimension to him. But if you want to know the accessibility, what is God like? What's his heart like? Jesus is the cl- in the closest relationship with the Father, and he has made him known. Then in Hebrews 1.3, let's look at this verse. The Son, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, which is where he is now, alive today. And then let's look at this third verse. Jesus answered. Jesus is speaking his own words here to one of his disciples, Philip. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, that's one of those incredible verses where you can't put Jesus in a box of just a good teacher or a nice man or a first century Mahatma Gandhi or something. You know, he is of another order. He's either selling the truth or he's lying or he's a terribly uh, weird character who said he was God. I believe he's telling the truth utterly. And he said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Right, that's one thing to bear in mind. 
Jesus is the best representation you get anywhere of God. Here's the other thing. Jesus hasn't changed his attitude since he went back to heaven. Since he went back to heaven at the right hand of the Father, Jesus has not become cold and aloof. Phew, that's over. Phew, I've done all that. Died on the cross, live again. Phew, now I can go back to being aloof God. I can be transcendent now. Phew, that's not, I don't want to mess around with those funny little things any longer. No, no, that's not what he's like. Look at this verse. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do you believe that? Yes, I do. Now that means that the character, the heart, the, the way Jesus behaves, the way he responds to people in the Gospels is a valid uh, instructive insight into how he's behaving today, what his heart's like and what he's doing. So I want you to remember those things as we read through this little passage today and the other ones that I'm sure we'll look at in other Sundays. We're going to read Mark 1 and verses 40 to 45 and the title for our talk is Jesus and the Ostracized, Jesus and the Outcast. Okay, let's read verses 40 to 45 of Mark 1. A man with leprosy came to him, came to Jesus, and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell anyone, tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out, the man went out, and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Now, we're going to look at this fairly briefly under four quick headings. Castaway. I want to talk, first of all, castaway. I wanted to find four C's. Sorry about this. So I'm calling castaway. I just like that sort of thing. Indulge me, please. Ostracized is an okay word, but, I, I, you know, you think, right, what's that mean? Ostracized means someone who's outcast. Castaway is what they used to do sometimes with people who were naughty on ships in the old days, very naughty. If they uh, mutinied or something, they would cast them away, put them in a boat and cast them away. And hope, they hoped they'd find a desert island or something to uh, survive on. Castaway is someone rejected. An outcast is someone put outside normal society, which is exactly what this means. Ostracized was banished. Uh, banished from normal society. Now, people can be ostracized, become outsiders, outcasts, for a variety of reasons. And in the Gospels, we find Jesus meeting with different sorts of ostracized people. Now, you could do a mini-series on it, and I'm not going to. But actually, there are different ways. And I guess remind you, if you know your Bibles, it helps us to remember different degrees. There's the woman of the well in Samaria in John 4. This woman is a Samaritan, and the Jews should have nothing to do with the Samaritans. They hate them. They think they're false. They worship a false religion, and they think they're a sort of traitorous, um, mixed breed. They are very anti the Samaritans. 
she's a Samaritan woman. She's a woman, which in the first century meant that men tended not to talk to them in a social way. And actually, their opinions were not wanted or treated with any respect. As you perhaps know, we've mentioned it before, a woman's uh, witness or testimony would not be used in a court because it was thought to be unreliable. So she's certainly despised at that level, but she's also a loose living woman. She's had five husbands and she's now living with a man who is not her husband. So she's coming for water to the well midday when it's hot, really hot in the Middle East. Most women would have come, almost all of them, either in the early morning or the evening when it was cool and going to the well would be a social activity, a bit like schoolgate stuff, where you might stand and talk to each other while you're just queuing up to collect water. She is deliberately avoiding that time probably because she is ostracised. People are just, even the Samaritans think she, well perhaps for her moral behaviour, do not want much to do with her. But Jesus meets with her. Jesus shows amazing respect and dignity and love towards her in a very appropriate way, and he brings salvation to this complete outsider, the woman at the well. And in the end, she goes and tells the rest of her village, and many of them come to know Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. Let me remind you of another one, Luke 19, another different sort of ostracized. This guy's very wealthy, but he's a tax collector. He's really a bit like a thug. He's a bit like a criminal. He's probably not a thug, actually. He's more like a, a Mr. Big criminal. He, he, he has the right to collect money for the Romans, taxes. He has the Roman army backing him up, so they will beat up anybody who doesn't do what he says. But actually, he can collect as much money as he likes, and he will rake off a lot for himself and become very wealthy. He's virtually a criminal. His name is Zacchaeus. He is despised. He is ostracized. People don't want much to do with him. And yet we find in Luke 19, Jesus knows him by name, calls him to himself, and says, I'm coming to your house today, which is uh, incredible. I mean, what the good high-living Jews would have thought of Jesus talking to a woman at the well, who was a Samaritan, immoral Samaritan, or having the audacity to go to a tax collector's house and invite himself, actually, to a tax collector's house. These are outrageous examples of Jesus reaching out to ostracize needy people. And that story ends with it saying, salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house today. He is completely changed. He starts giving back his money and giving away his money, and Jesus meets with him. Now, the one we're looking at today is truly and physically ostracized in a far more tangible way. The woman at the well and uh, Zacchaeus are ostracized and I'm telling you about them to remind you that there's a range of ways you can be outsiders. But this man is really in a terrible pickle. He has this horrible disease called leprosy. And in this disease, as you will know, you are in pain. Well, you're not in pain, actually. You are slowly dying because your nerve system dies and your body is virtually rotting in front of you, and frankly, it's like a slow, gruesome death where it slowly creeps in from the outside of your body. It's a pretty hideous disease, but to add to that disease, there is a lot more that a leper has to put up with. This is considered and is an infectious disease, and it's incurable, and so there was quite, at one level, a reasonable but rather harsh law to protect the rest of society. Here's an example of it, Leviticus 13, verses 45 to 46. Bear in mind, this is therefore part of the law that the uh, Jews would be living by. 
Talking about leprosy, anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. So they are completely outside of ordinary society. And also, I won't bother to give you the scripture, it's very clear in the law that if you touch a leper, you become unclean. Now, you're not unclean for life, but you are ostracized temporarily. You'd probably be put out of society for seven days, and then the priest would check whether you had still got, had caught, caught it, got infection. If you were okay, you might have been brought back in again. But just to touch a leper would mean you, in effect, joined them in being ostracized, even if you hadn't yet caught the disease. It was treated very seriously. So no one wanted to get near a leper in the first century of Palestine. In fact, people regularly threw stones at lepers. They threw stones at them to keep them away. Now, there were two fear reasons, which were not right, but were understandable. One is, it was seen as a terrible disease... And infectious. Think of the Ebola. Think of the Ebola outbreak we had just a year or so ago, or a few months ago, in Africa. Think of the fear that generated. Think of the way people are protected and, 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 you know, don't want to be touched and isolated. That sort of thing was around leprosy, a bit like that Ebola thing. So there was a real fear. I don't want them near. You come near me, I'm throw stone. You keep your distance. You're supposed to be out there. That was one thing. And then the other thing, the other fear, was the religious ceremonial thing. If I even brush against this leper, I will be considered unclean. Because the rabbis had added, as they often did, extra nuances to the Leviticus passage we've read. And it became worse and worse. So if you got almost within breathing distance or sight brushing distance, you were unclean, all that sort of thing. So you did not want to be remotely near a leper. They were despised and feared and outcasts, living on charity, pretty poor, impoverished lifestyle. Let's move on. That's the person, the castaway, the outlaw. Let's look at the compassion, and we're going to focus here on verse 41. So if you could put that up, please. Let's just look at this verse. And we're going to take, this is going to be the longest section this morning. (laughs) Be this evening by the time I finish. This is going to be the longest section... Because I think it tells us the most about Jesus. It's a fascinating verse. Look, look at verse 41. Now, this is from the latest NIV, the new NIV. If some of you have used the NIV for years, you will know that the 1984 one, which I've used for years and I still prefer, has different nuances and translations in places. Than this is the latest one, which is all you can get nowadays. It's okay, and it's accurate, I suppose, to a degree, but it does change things, and so there's some little differences. Let's read the verse, and I'll explain what I mean. It says, Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Okay, remember what this is in response to. The leper comes as near to Jesus as he dares to. He falls on his knees and he says, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. 
Now this man is in filthy rags. Remember what we read? His hair unkempt, his face covered, just his eyes visible. He's clearly diseased. He's clearly very poor. He's probably extremely smelly. And, he's, and he comes as near as he dares, falls on his knees and says, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now this translation says, Jesus was indignant. Now, it's an interesting translation. It's not what most do. You could find in the old NIV, Jesus filled with compassion. You can find in the ESV, moved with pity. And in the NASB, moved with compassion. Now, they are, none of them are wrong. But what are they doing? What are they tussling with? Why are they doing it this way? I actually think this Jesus was indignant isn't great because I think it immediately gives you the impression that he is angry with the leper. And if you were totally ignorant, you might think he's annoyed the leper's interrupted him and asked for healing. Or he's a bit angry uh, that the man said, if you are willing, oh, you know, how, you know, how dare you question my willingness... I genuinely don't think that is what the indignation's about, which is why the other translations are good and helpful, ones that say moved with pity and moved with compassion. But actually, what they're struggling with is that there is an element in the original language, the Greek, the Aramaic Greek, Aramaic I think it is here, where there is anger. Jesus is angry about something. He's not just sentimentally moved. He's not just sorry for the man. He is angry. There's an anger edge to his feeling. Moved with compassion is possibly better than filled with compassion. Because something deep in his gut, if you like, is moving him. And I just want to quickly remind you, if you know your Bible, there's another incident in John 11 where something similar comes through. This is the death of Lazarus. And when Jesus meets with Mary and Martha, first of all, who are grieving the death of their brother, who's died young, really, in effect... And then when Jesus goes to the grave where he is about to raise Lazarus from the dead and he knows what he's about to do. But in both of those times you get a couple of times of verses which are translated something like this. Deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And again they suggest anger. The original language suggests that Jesus is angry. Jesus is angry. Just get that into your head, that Jesus is angry. That comes out in John 11, and it comes out here in Mark 1. One commentary puts it like this on Mark 1. His anger, Jesus' anger, can be understood as an expression of righteous indignation at the ravages of sin, disease, and death, which are taking their toll on people. Now, get that. Jesus is indignant at the illness. He's indignant at all this man has happened to him. Here he is, a broken, dying body, filthy, poor, excluded from society. And Jesus is moved with an angry compassion. Just as when he goes to the grave of Lazarus, there's something about his death and this early death and the grieving sisters that makes Jesus angry. And he seems to shout, almost roar, Lazarus come forth. Some translators, some commentators say. It's almost an angry shout, Lazarus come forth. Now what is this? Jesus is angry at sin and sickness and all the divisive, destructive effects of these things on humanity. 
Jesus sees the whole thing as a war. Now get this, this is a conflict verse. It really is, these verses. He sees it as a clash of kingdoms. In fact, the language of these verses, 41 and 42, is not dissimilar from delivering from demons. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand, touched the man. I'm willing to be clean. I'm willing to be clean, he orders. And again, some commentators say it's almost like he's delivering the man from a spirit of leprosy. But it doesn't say that. Sometimes it does say that. It says there's a dumb spirit or a deaf spirit. It does not say that here. So you, but what you've got here is a deeper thing. The whole thing is seen as a work of darkness. The whole thing is the consequences of sin and the fall and Satan's work. Jesus clearly sees this as part of being oppressed by the devil which is picked up in Acts. He went around delivering all those oppressed by the devil. And Jesus clearly sees this as part of his mission, his clash of kingdoms, his warfare. That is his response to this broken body in front of him. It's quite profound. You need to get it in your spirit because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Then it says he reached out. That's why I told you I want to linger on this verse. He reached out his hand and touched the man. Now, this touch is amazing. You can get over it too quickly if you don't linger on some of these things. First of all, as long as the leper had the infection, the law of God applied. In other words, Leviticus 13, which we read, applied. This man is an infected leper. If you touch him, you are now ceremonially unclean. You are now legitimately considered to be unclean. So Jesus touches him and deliberately, technically, becomes unclean. The man's not healed at that point, it would seem. And certainly the authorities would view it that way. This man has leprosy. He has got a horrible disease. A bit like the Ebola. You could be in danger by touching him. Certainly that culture would have thought so. And then another point to bear in mind, Jesus did not have to touch him in order to heal him. In the Gospels, you will see a lot of healing where Jesus gives just the word. And in fact, there are some people he heals at a distance. He heals the uh, servant of the centurion and others. They're healed uh, before, before he gets there without going there. So Jesus is quite capable of healing this man without touching him. The touch is deliberate. The touch is very important. Lepers are not touched. Lack of human touch can be grim for people. Jesus is compassionate in his touching as well as in the healing. There's a bigger thing going on here. He's not just physically healing him. He's breaking in with with a care and a humanity almost and touching him. And his compassion overrides his regard for the ceremonial considerations of the law which is interesting, because he does that quite a lot. He heals on the Sabbath when the Pharisees and others are setting him up for that, and he doesn't worry about those regulations. He actually sees the issue of people's need as more important. Because in a way, Jesus is bringing the heart of God. The law, you see, always, if not, you're not careful, misses the point that it's only an end, a means to an end. The Old Testament, particularly the Levitical details, which we're not going to remotely get into, but they are care for God, for God's people, under the Old Covenant in the context of the desert. They are largely 
um, ways of protecting God's people from being mixed with the cultures around or getting ill or, or anything. They're surviving. They're not to eat stuff that would poison them and probably cause them problems. So there's a, almost a, there's a protective care angle to a lot of the law. It, it's not driven by just wanting to set up loads of funny details. It's driven by a care for God's people, even in the old context. The heart of God is always for man, not the Sabbath. As Jesus said, the Sabbath's made for man. It's made for rest and for God. And, and, and so on. Jesus says there's a law here about you looking after your parents. You've turned it right away round. The Corban thing, if you know your Bibles. So Jesus is actually always after the heart of the thing, which is caring for people and delivering people, not just keeping the ceremonial law. You'll find that a lot. But the law, you see, can't do anything to heal us. Jesus is coming in another level to the law. He's going to break. The law is just there to stop other people getting leprosy. Technically, that's what it's for. It's not, that is, it's a protective law. So if, you know, the leper's out there, Ebola, think Ebola, the leper's out there, you don't touch him, that is essentially just a sort of defense mechanism to protect people from getting leprosy and to keep it in bounds. Jesus comes at another level. He's not interested in that. He's not scared of getting the illness. He's come to destroy the illness. He's come to turn the whole thing around. He's come to bring an answer to the very root need of the problem. Now, that is the same at everything. That's the same about sin. That's a, this is at another level. We don't need the law just to, st- whoa, make sure you don't do this just to keep it in control. Jesus comes to give us a new heart, a new spirit, changing the whole deal. And that's what he's doing here. He's demonstrating a different way of operating. He knows he is bringing an answer far deeper than anything the law could do. There's a lovely little phrase, I think it's in verse 38. As he begins to go around preaching, he said, "Uh, I I, want to preach on elsewhere. He wants to bring the word and the kingdom of works and word because this is why I have come. I've come to bring the kingdom of God. I've come to bring the words of God, to bring the works of God. And he is able to break through all this religious clutter. John Eldridge, in that book I said, uh, I, I mentioned, says this. The risks Jesus is willing to take with his reputation are simply stunning. Jesus is free, free from what people think, free from religion, free from false obligation, free to love the unlovely, free to embrace the outcast, free to be our saviour. I love that. The risks Jesus is willing to take with his reputation are simply stunning. It's right. Jesus isn't frightened of somehow jeopardizing his his whole ministry. Bear in mind, this is the beginning of his ministry. It's Mark chapter 1. From a technical ceremonial point of view, he could be written off as unclean by the law and the law keepers. He is not bothered by that at all. He's not saying, well, I've only just started. Better keep my nose clean. Better be careful what they think. He doesn't even think like that. He's free. He's free from what people think. He's free from religion. He's free from false obligation. Free to love the unlovely. Free to embrace the outcast. Free to be our saviour. And he's not frightened of catching leprosy. Because he's going to destroy leprosy. It's leprosy that's got to be frightened, not him. 
And he's going to bring healing. He's going to strike a mortal blow. He knows one day soon he will strike the most fundamental blow when he dies on the cross and rises again. He's going to actually get to the root of this complex web of sin and sickness and death and the dominion of darkness, which is woven in with it. So he does indeed see this as war. And in this case, there is an instantaneous healing. Immediately, the leprosy left the man, and he was cleansed. Let's talk a little bit about the conflict, because I think this is fascinating. It'll be briefer, but I think it's fascinating to see it. There is actually conflict going on here, and I've highlighted it already. There is a conflict with the demonic over the healing. It's almost as though he's coming against something tangible when he deals with it. Be clean, he says. Uh, exact words, I am willing, be clean. He commands the man to be hit well. And immediately, it says, the leprosy left him. Immediately, the leprosy left him. And he was cleansed. The leprosy doesn't make Jesus sick and unclean. Jesus makes the leper well and clean. Immediately. It's a clash of kingdoms. There's also clearly a conflict with the religious authorities, which is going on in the background. So if you just pop up verse 44, please, for me. Uh, Mark 1.44. Let's just read what the instructions Jesus clearly gives. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Just leave that up for a moment. He's clearly wanting the leper to be officially clean, which is great. Jesus is having regard for what's appropriate in society. So he actually says, no, I've healed you, you're healed. Wow, I'm healed. But actually, you need to get that all officially, like go to the doctor and get it signed off. The doctor says you're healed. The priest says you are healed. You need to get clear. And I think that's a responsible attitude. It's the equivalent to saying to someone, if you're healed, go to the doctor, get the doctor to examine you, say you're healed, and that you don't need to take the medicine any longer. Don't just throw the medicine in the dustbin. Go to the doctor who gave you the medicine. Say, I'd like you to do the tests again because I believe I'm healed. And if I'm healed, I don't want to take my medicine anymore. It's that sort of level. It's right. That's what he does. He says, go to the priest, show yourself, and make sure you're properly cleansed, if you like. But he also says, as a testimony to them. And I think Jesus has got another more conflict level thought here. Show them who I am and what I'm doing. Show them what the kingdom is. Go and tell them what happened. to the, Not everybody, he says, but tell the priest. And he says, it's a testimony to them. A testimony, I think, about Jesus and what he's bringing and who he is. The Messiah with the kingdom of God breaking in. But also implied behind this, there seems to be a third area of some conflict, which is in this puzzling thing where he tells him, Don't tell this to anyone other than the priest. Don't tell this to anyone. Um, So what's that about? Well, you see, the crowd wanted... Jesus knew their hearts, and they wanted miracles. They wanted free food, feeding of the 5,000 will come later. They wanted the spectacular. They wanted healing. But they didn't want what Jesus really brought, which is the whole deal of the kingdom, who he was as the Messiah and who he was with his teaching and all that that meant. Unfortunately, this guy is so deliriously happy, he does tell everyone. And Jesus knew what would happen. I think all Jesus is concerned about is trying to protect 
so he can do more ministry in this area. I don't think it's too profound. I think it's at that level he's mostly concerned. But we'll just talk about it in a moment. Because this guy can't keep it to himself. He tells everyone, and then it says, as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Now, I think there's something we've got to learn. Why does Jesus not want that to happen? Most of us would think that's good news, wouldn't we? Well, everybody's coming. It's gone viral. You just lose a modern phrase. It's gone viral. Everybody knows about the leper. It's great. There's people everywhere. Jesus said, oh, that's a disaster. Why does he think that? That's so different from you and I. We think it's all about getting people interested. It's all about stirring them up. Jesus knows the heart of man and woman, knows the heart of people. And he knows we are always after stuff for ourselves. My body, my body, be my body. You know, that's what we're all like. Oh, yeah, make me feel better, make me feel better. Yeah, okay, it's not, I'm the same. I can get funny when I'm not well. Marion will tell you about that. But, but I was ill on Tuesday. I'm not very cheerful bunny when I'm not well. So, but on the other hand, on the other hand, Jesus says it's not just about your body. It's not just the free food and the miracles. I'm not a miracle worker, primarily, I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. I've come to bring something far deeper and more profound. And he doesn't want to just major on that. And there's a balance that needs there because miracles are great and we want them. But there's a sense in which Jesus has got a deeper motive. It's to get to the heart. It's to establish the kingdom. It's to do the teaching. He's looking. I don't want them just chasing after me for the miracles and the food and the healing. And I think that behind that tells us that Jesus is battling what we might call the world. He's battling the world's values and systems. And we have to understand the kingdom of God is like that. It, we, we don't just play it by the world's rules. We don't just say, like, we can advertise this well and get this place filled and everybody feels they've had a good time. That must be the ultimate goal. Well, that's not how Jesus thinks. He doesn't think like that. So the ultimate goal is to see people saved and healed. It's better to see five or six people properly saved than 500 people merely entertained and nobody saved. And so it's a very different way of thinking, which is kingdom and Jesus. So let's quickly draw our conclusions, try and draw a few threads together as we finish. What can we learn from all this? Well, I think, well, hopefully you've learned stuff even as I've spoken. I hope so. That's the point of it, really. But... but what can we learn? I think we can learn a few things from the leper, very quickly. The leper gets an amazing healing and a breakthrough. Now, he actually is a little bit naughty because he goes and tells everybody, and Jesus told him not to, but I don't think he gets a hard time for Jesus about that. That's interesting. I don't think Jesus, I think Jesus probably understood it. And so I think we need to learn that Jesus isn't just interested in an absolutely precise, detailed obedience. It's a heart obedience. It's worth saying that. But what he is interested in is our cry for mercy. And this always opens the heart of God. This man comes, falls on his knees, no pride, no ifs and buts. Jesus, you could make me well. If you're willing, you can heal me. And in a way, that is, I think, a great example of how to come and ask for things. It's to throw yourself on God's mercy. It's to be bold. This guy is bold. He presses. He knows everybody thinks he's horrible, throws stones at him, and he comes as close as he dares to Jesus. He's as bold as he can be, and he brings a clear request. I want healing. And in it, there is definitely a grain of faith. 
I believe you can heal me. If you are willing, you can make me clean. That is faith. Jesus loves all of that. Learn that. He loves mercy, cry, not thinking it's your right. Just God help me. He loves the faith, grain of faith there. You can heal me. And he loves the boldness that goes with it. I think that's what touches his heart. And that's certainly what other scriptures would support he responds to. So we need to come like that to Jesus. We think not be avoiding the basic lessons the leper himself gives us. But what can we learn quickly from Jesus? Well, the other side of the same coin. He doesn't turn away anybody who asks for mercy and help. It doesn't matter what state you are in, what other people think of you, and what how other people have rejected you. Jesus will not reject you if you genuinely come openly and sincerely and humbly and say, Jesus, accept me. Jesus, help. It's not about, the rest of society may exclude you. That was true of the leper. But if you come like that leper does, Jesus' heart is to say, of course I'm with you. I accept you. I've come for people like you. You're exactly the same. He does it with the Samaritan woman, does it with Zacchaeus. I've come for people like you. Secondly, Jesus is willing to heal. Don't let's miss the obvious. Jesus is willing. He says, I am willing. I even just want to say something there. Sometimes we can, we can sort of think of the packaging and the phrasing about how John speaks or if it's good or bad. Get to the heart of it. Jesus is saying... I am willing. He is the same, what? Yesterday, today, and forever. Okay? I am willing. He has a compassion and he's moved, sorry, his power is moved by his compassion. Very interesting. He's not interested in power shows. He is not interested. It's not secondary. Healing the leper is not secondary to getting a big name. Oh, yeah, I'll do that. I'll go down rather well. I'll get all the crowds. He actually doesn't want all that. He is interested in the leper, and his compassion is genuinely motivating him. He's the same today. It's not just secondary to getting a big, bigger thing going. It really isn't. And one touch from Jesus changes everything. And that touch is awesome. That touch breaks religious taboos. It breaks human fear taboos. And it's compassion concretely manifested in a physical touch. It's brilliant. Same Jesus today. He will touch and meet your need right where you are and what you need. He speaks with authority and he speaks with power. And he still speaks with authority and power. Be healed. Be well. So let's finish by reminding ourselves Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And let's remind you of something else. If I can say this briefly and try and get it right. Do you know it's better today than even at the time we've just been reading? Better. How can that be? Well, if you look at the end of what I've just read... Jesus could only be in one place at a time. That was actually part of the problem with the leper getting so excited he told everybody. It says Jesus couldn't get into the towns anymore, which actually meant that some people, humanly speaking, missed out on being healed 
Because you had to have Jesus. You had to be with Jesus. And he's only a man, and he's only in one place at a time. Now, that's not the same today. Jesus has died, he's risen, he's gone back to the right hand of the Father, he's poured out the Holy Spirit, and he's told his followers, you can lay hands on the sick, and they'll be healed. You cast out demons. He said, I'm with you always, the end of the earth. It's better for you I go away. I send the Holy Spirit, and you can do it, and I'm multiplying myself a million times over. I'm not just in one place. I'm wherever my body is. Wherever my spirit-filled disciples are, that's where I'm doing the stuff. That's how it is today. It's better. And Jesus was very clear it would be better. He said, when I died and risen again, I'm going to be able to pour out the spirit, and then you can do this. I will commission you to do it. And you'll go out and do the works I've been doing. 